Hello and welcome to Rear View, the show where we get to chat to the fascinating people from the motoring universe, learning how they got to where they are today. I'm Andrew and this is episode 20. I'm delighted to say hello and welcome to my guest Hannah Gordon. Straight away I'm going to ask Hannah to introduce to herself because she's going to be much better at it than me. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. Um, okay, I'm a mechanic. I've been doing it now for well over 12 years. And um, yeah, I've just be- literally been in the car scene since since a little child. So um, I'm pretty much obsessed with everything car related and engines and bits like that, really. You've led us straight away into the, the first question, which is going to be the history. Yeah. And you've just there said that uh, since you've been a little little child, you've been fascinated by them. So do you remember roughly when you first started getting into it? And and was that helped by anyone? Um, it's strange, actually, because my family aren't hugely into their cars. Um, so I don't know where it's come from. Um, but, you know, since I've been small, I've been really interested in cars, um, the engines that they make. And I remember when I was a lot younger, my nan saying that, you know, I could tell an, uh, what car's engine it was and, and things like that. And um, when I was six years old, I was actually a bridesmaid for my uncle's wedding and everyone else got jewellery. And I remember getting a, um, a Lamborghini Diablo uh, car and I was so happy with it and um, I remember showing everyone at the wedding how happy I was with my red Lamborghini um, toy and um, it's just it, it's kind of all just gone from there really um, and I don't know where it's come from it's just a passion that I've got that doesn't seem to come from anywhere it's just it's just kind of instilled in me really was it the oily bits that first attracted you to the car was it the <laughs> no definitely not <laughs> it was it was the noise and the uh-huh. the presence of uh, i suppose the supercars and you know the just the i don't know what it is you know you'd see a car on the road and you'd be amazed at what it was and the sound it made and and whenever I saw a car that was rare or something that I wasn't sure, quite sure what it was about, it kind of instilled a, a, a kind of um, happiness and kind of wanting to know what it was. And mm-hmm. um, just seemed just seemed a natural progression to then work in the car industry. Um, and I've been lucky that I've been managed. I've managed to turn my passion into a, a career as such. So. Um, yeah, no, it's been a strange choice and it's been questioned many a time by myself and by friends and family as to why I want to be oily and dirty and <laughs> work around a load of foul-mouthed men, possibly. But um, it, it's been a, a, a great career and um, something that I'm still hugely in love with. It is seen as unusual for a woman, because you're, you're only the second woman to come on uh, on the show, which is uh, mainly my fault. Um, because I'm a, I'm a terrible person at uh, trying to show diversity. Right. But do you think um, a lot of the questions you've had are because at the moment it's still not seen as a typical industry to get into? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I've been so lucky with how I've got into it. I mean, I actually haven't even done a course in it or gone to college. I've learned everything has been on the tools, um, hands-on work, and I've learned everything through that. And it's been a superb learning curve for me that because I learn by seeing things I don't learn from reading things and so I've been extremely lucky with who I've worked with and the the support that I've been given and um, it's not an easy industry for women to get into especially the engineer and the mechanic side of it um, you know and it's quite a harsh place to work at times as well you know we all know kind of what certain garages are like and they can be rowdy and 
So it's not the easiest of atmospheres for a woman to work in. And I don't think sometimes they get the support in the past that they've needed. Um, but I'd say... Well, it's, it's not that long ago, was it, that you would expect to see particular calendars on the wall you know, <laughs> yes. and that sort of thing, isn't it? I know it? exactly it, what you mean, yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's it's not, it, you know, what you're saying there, it makes perfect sense that it, you know, it, it is not, it's not been a, uh, an open and welcoming environment. It's not been a, a welcoming industry. Yeah. Um, just uh, probably through ignorance and yeah, that it sort takes, of thing. Yeah, there's been, I mean, I've gone to places and felt, I mean, I remember when I was, I first had one of my um, first cars and I went to a scrapyard to go and get some bits and just the total kind of ignorance of the people that work there. You know, I was completely brushed off. I was you know, laughed at basically. And I'd been working on cars for three years at this point. So, mm. you know, I, I did have a sound knowledge of certain things. And I just, I felt really uncomfortable being there. And um, I basically turned around to him. I said, look, if you're not going to help me, I'll just go and get it myself. So I went off, I went, got the part and kind of drove off feeling a little bit down about it all. And mm. I wouldn't say that's an isolated incident either. You, you know, it's it, it happens a few times. There's been times where I've not wanted to be in the industry, where I've had a day where I've just had hassle from customers and and, and it gets you down. But I've also been lucky now to work around certain people that, you know, it doesn't matter what gender you are. I've been welcomed in. I think as a female, you might get tested a bit more because they want to actually know if you do know what you're mm. talking about, which I think is unfair because it's not a level playing field at all. No. no but um, I can understand that, you know, certain people want to go into the industry, but then find it difficult to maintain work through through it because you have to have quite a thick skin at times. And um, it's it's not particularly easy, but a lot of manufacturers now are seeing the benefits from having a diverse workforce and are putting forward apprenticeships and and bits like that where women can get involved and it can be a nicer workplace for them. I've noticed uh, in particular Jaguar Land Rover are very vocal. Yeah. Um, and and do you think that uh, not that I'm oh, crikey, we're we're a couple of minutes into here and I'm I'm trying to ask you to solve society's. <laughs> Inequality problem. Sorry for that. Put your bit on right. the spot. On a Friday morning as well. Yeah. yeah. Enjoy your day off. Uh, <laughs> um, but do you, what do you think can be done to to help this? I mean, I know because it, it, it is a society problem. It's not just yeah. the motoring industry. Let's let's be fair about this. You know, it's not. We're not. It, but in in some industries, it is uh, more so. And I think yeah. um, the motor industry, uh, it, it is more so. Do you think it's a case of well-documented programs that larger companies uh, put their backing behind and are very, um, very visible in showing that, that that's something that they support? Do you think that's yes. a help or are there other things that can be done? I think it all starts with the stereotype that um, car garages have got and you know when when I talk to friends and family a car garage for a female is a very daunting place even if yeah. you're just taking your car there to be serviced or MOT'd so it's it's changing the stigma that the car industry has with women and providing a place that isn't scary mm. because it, you know a lot of women don't know a lot about cars and they're taking their car somewhere and they're trusting that that person is going to be honest and you know and things like that and the car industry for a lot of people, doesn't come across as an honest industry. And I think that's a problem that needs to be solved. I think also educating from quite a young age um, and making the car industry attractive to younger girls. Mm -hmm. And um, 
for a career that you know it's interesting and it could provide some great opportunities. I know a lot of F1 teams now are promoting it to a lot of women, you know, Aston Martin, McLaren, they're taking on women in their, you know, factories and bits like that. So it's, it's not just the servicing of everyday cars. You know, women have the opportunity to work in some incredible places. Um, it, it's just the attractiveness of the job. It, it's just purely not seen as attractive to girls growing up. But, I mean, I was a petrol head from, from day one, so it was the only option that I really felt was for me as a career. Mm. Um, but I think the industry as a whole just doesn't seem to connect that world to women. And um, it's, you know, when they're selling cars, women now are buying more cars than men. And even when there is a partnership involved with um, a man and a woman, the woman usually does have the say in, <laughs> in the car yeah. choice. So yeah. it, manufacturers need to kind of look into this and realise that although women don't have as much knowledge of cars, they're particularly a buying force behind them. Yeah, I think it's they have to tailor how the message is delivered. Yeah. Uh, because it's it's, uh, it's it's something I've I've noticed in the last few years in particular with such a, a growth of uh, different niche blogs and vlogs and podcasts and stuff like that, that car manufacturers are, are looking at other, other niches because we, we're very contained, aren't we, in this little in the motor, you know, the, the petrol yeah. corner, yeah. we're very contained and we're very small in this country. So for us to talk about, oh, we like this car because it does X, Y, and Z is all well and good. But most people outside of this don't care about the talk, really. They want to know, can I get my yeah. bags in for the weekend easy? Or is it going to cost me a fortune to fuel it up? And it's it's delivering, and I think it's something that we in the motoring corner because I, I know you do reviews and I want to touch on that as well yeah it's something that we need to address as well otherwise we're just going to be shunted more and more to the side yeah that we we have to appeal to a larger audience and I know some I know that's an ongoing battle for publications and blogs and stuff you, you can see that going on but I, I I don't think and this is this could be white middle class man talking here but I don't think doing a specialist edition car aimed at women is particularly the way to go either. No, I, I agree. Because yeah. the, the women in my life that I, I showed that to got quite grumpy. <laughs> a couple of cars that have come out recently with that sort of idea. Yeah. And, and I just think that was poorly judged. Yeah, I think women want to be, they don't want to be kind of put to the side and they get a specialist product. That's not what, you know, the car industry is all about or should be about. Women kind of want to just be within the mainstream, but also be feel like they're not being made a fool out of or taken for a ride when they buy a car mm. or within the car industry. So it's not that we want a specialist product. It's that we want to be made to feel that where we're going is trustworthy and that we're going to get a, a decent deal kind of thing. Yeah, equally valued. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, right. Okay. Well, we, we fixed uh, sexism in the merchant world. <laughs> um, that's that's done in the first 10 minutes. That's brilliant. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm being glib, but it, it is such a big... Thing and I didn't want to make it all about. I don't want to make this um, chat with you all about that. But I think it's you. You are in a very even more male orientated sector of the motoring industry. I am. Yeah. So it, I mean, it was something we were going to discuss. I think going back a bit to you were saying you were petrified from young. So the stuff you did in school, did you tailor class choices and things like that to a? Uh, more motoring bent on things or did you just was the idea to get through and get into a garage as quick as possible um yeah no a lot of the stuff I chose at school wasn't particularly um aimed at motoring I have to admit I I mean I 
I was lucky enough um, growing up that there's a local garage in the village that I, I grew up in. And I used to go there from about 10 years old. And I remember just kind of handing tools to the guys and probably getting on their nerves, to be honest, but hmm. just kind of discovering things and taking things on board. So when I was at school, I, I did my A-levels. I I was kind of, I did a scholarship in football. I was quite a good footballer. So I did a lot of um, traveling around the country playing football when I was about 17. Mm-hmm. And then, um, but in between that, I was doing a lot of the car stuff and, um, you know, from when I passed my tests at 17 and I got my first car, I was able to do most of the stuff on my car. So kind of school holidays and whenever I wasn't at school, I was spending it down the garage learning um, all from the guys there. So yeah, at school I didn't really tailor any of my stuff to cars. And to be honest, it was probably from my family really. They, as much as they supported me through the car stuff, they also knew how important it was for me to get A-levels and to get a decent kind of, set of results that if the car stuff didn't work out that I would always have a, something else to kind of fall back on. Yeah. Um, yeah. so I didn't put all my eggs in one basket at all with the car, car related, um, learning, but I was still learning in the, in the background and, you know, deep down I knew that cars was always what I wanted to pursue. How soon was it after a levels were you, uh, did you get into work in a garage rather than just invade a garage? <laughs> yeah, I was like a little invader when I was younger, yeah, getting on everyone's nerves. You know, how does this work? How does this? And everything like that. But um, it was when I finished my A-levels and I was around about 18. Um, and, you know, I, I spoke to the, the guy who run the garage, who's a close family friend, and decided to go into it really I'd had some other other small jobs that were part-time and just to get a bit of money and then as soon as a a full-time vacancy came up I went straight over to the to the garage and and started from about 1920 doing full-time cars and how long were you at that garage or are you still there I'm still there (laughs) right okay um but that's not I do um I do about one day there a week um I'm I'm pretty lucky I actually work for about two or three different garages so okay. um, my week is filled up with, you know, when they need, I give them dates that I'm free and I fill my week up with those different garages. So I am fairly lucky that I get a whole arrangement of, of places to work, cars to work on. And, you know, the variety is a great draw kind of to the job. So you're, you're dealing with cars from all ages and all, all varieties, I'm taking yeah. it. Yeah. Is there a particular era of car that you prefer to work on? I mean, the modern stuff is getting stupidly difficult to work on now. Um, I suppose you can't get your fingers in the the engine bays. (laughs) I'm using it, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I've got the smallest hands, obviously, compared to a guy, so I get all the the really awful jobs of trying to get down the little cracks of the engine. And If you could just be double-jointed as well, please. I know, yeah. (laughs) If I could just turn my hand another 90 degrees, it'd be so much easier. Um, But it's just so difficult. Uh, You know, it turns on the engine management light and it could be a number of things. And then when it Mm. is something, it's quite expensive. So I don't – I mean, working on modern cars is part of what I do, but it's not what I enjoy the most. I mean, I love working on a lot older cars, 60s, 70s, 80s. They're the type of cars that I'm actually interested in more regarding driving as well and and working on, you know, they're what I prefer. There's more room. You, you've got to use your knowledge a bit more rather than plugging a computer in to kind of tell you what's wrong. So, Is it with, with the older cars, I'm presuming you, you've got a 
you're using uh, experience and a feel. It's it's a much more seems it seems to me because I am I'm useless with spanners. I have to say it's something I wish I, I got better at, but I need time and space to. <laughs> explore that further um but i, I would it, it looks to me with the, with older cards that you use it's more of a full sensory yeah. experience because you're you're listening you're smelling you're feeling you, you know it's it's all the things going together you, you know you, I, you can hear people say it just didn't quite feel right or i can hear yeah. that sound isn't right but you look at it and you're going well nothing looks any different and, yeah it's it's a lot more it's so much nicer to kind of fix a car when you gone through all the practices that you were taught rather than a modern car and you plug it in and it says something and you can't reach the thing and you spend two days trying to strip the engine to try and get to this one sensor and you fix that and then it's something else and it's it's a longer process sometimes with the modern cars whereas a you know you're working on something that's a bit older you've got everything's a lot more mechanical it's a lot more hands-on it's a lot more thinking and um, it's a lot more enjoyable um so the, the modern stuff, especially with all the hybrids coming in and the electrics, um, it's just getting a lot more difficult to work on. And, you know, you've got to have a certificate now to work on the electrical side of, of the newer cars. And um, it's, yeah, it's, it's going into a direction where it's going to be a lot of main dealer fixing rather than, you know, your garage in the village. Yeah, uh, you, can, you can see that more and more. I mean, and it was, was it something like five or six years ago? I remember talking to somebody uh, and they said they had to take their car back to the main dealer to get a light bulb changed, a headlight changed, um, because otherwise they were going to, if they went to Halfords and did it, they'd invalidate their warranty. Right. And you, you've suddenly made a £20 job and, a, you know, an hour probably going to buy it, getting in there, well, when you could get your fingers in behind the headlight yeah. ford mark focus mark one i whoever designed that <laughs> yeah i've, I've lost yeah. many layers of skin to that, to that little thing um but and you say now it's you know whatever the main dealer is an hour plus the part which will be an incredible markup and things yes. like that you say, well it's not cheap now um so, yeah, I, I, I could see how it would be much more satisfying rather than, you know, effectively going Control-Alt-Delete. Yeah. Um, you're, you're just, right, oh, experiment with this and that. When it comes to an older car, is there a particular aspect of fixing the car that you prefer to do? I like, um, I mean, I've had a few in the last year where you get like a barn find and mm -hmm. it's a non-runner, it comes in, it looks a bit shabby. And um, to get that running again, I mean, I did a Mark One uh, Cortina last year. I think I saw you put pictures up on Twitter. Yeah, it'd been sitting in a barn for about tw 20 years, approximately 18 to 20 years. And um, we, I mean, all the brakes were seized. We towed it in. And within about 10 minutes, we had it running. And um, <laughs> it's bringing cars like that back to life. You know, I know they're worth quite a bit now, the old Fords, but... There's so many that are sitting in barns and not doing anything, and it's so nice to kind of change a few bits, get them running, get them back out there. Because, you know, as a kid, I love seeing those kind of cars, so it's nice getting back on the road and get the younger generation seeing these cars again that, you know, they wouldn't have a chance of seeing otherwise. Mm. Um, so definitely getting the old cars back and back running again is, is what I enjoy the most. Is that something you'd, uh, if... If money was no object and you had all the time in the world, is that something you'd like to pursue restoration of cars, going down that avenue? I'm currently in talks with a company of for going and doing some restorations because it is something that I've always wanted to do and that's that's something that I want to build towards is a restoration side of things. So 
I will probably in the next, you know, few months be doing restorations, which it, to be honest, is a dream come true. That is oh, the, cool. yeah, that is the avenue that I've always wanted to take and classic cars and the restoration of them is something that has interested me much beyond modern cars and, and working on them. So I'm really looking forward to some of the stuff that might be coming up actually. So, um, okay. Um, this is apparently a contentious question in the um, restoration world, mm-hmm. but uh, original restoration or restoration modification? <laughs> it depends or what car it, depend? it is. Right, okay. I think it depends what car it is. Um, I will always. I like go that answer. I like that answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sit on the fence. <laughs> I will always say original is better than anything else. I think with certain cars you've just got to keep that originality. But I understand there are certain aspects of originality that aren't particularly uh, user-friendly. So, you know, if you're putting on electronic ignition and added added bits like that, I can't see a problem with doing that. Um, mm. I know some people put power steering on there, and it just makes life easier for them. But as far as modifying it to the point that it's no longer really what it was intended to be, I don't agree with with that. I think originality is very important. I think it's very important um, for the sale of it. If you're looking to possibly make a profit on it, originality is very important. Uh, I think it's also very important for the, you know, the heritage of the car. I think if you're messing about with with other stuff, I don't think it's. I don't know. I'm probably quite old fashioned in my views, but I definitely prefer the originality of a car. This is me sitting here, but I, I'd like to get, say, an old Merc W124, and then. Mm change the improve the brakes right. and improve the the lights and things like that but not the yeah. not the exterior i'd like to keep the, no. you know because that's one of the things i really like about them so yes. it would be the um the more safety aspect side of things yeah i think that, you know that's fine because you uh, as you look at the vehicle you wouldn't notice really the difference it's only the drivability so when you have your lights on because you know old cars have got lights like candles so yeah. i mean it, you know it makes sense to change bits like that because looking at it, you wouldn't necessarily know that it's had those modifications. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd agree that any modification that makes it easier to drive and safer isn't a bad thing. You're saying that with, with modern cars, um, it's becoming trickier to deal with because it's a lot of it's uh, on the diagnostic yeah. side of things. Do you have to go off and get qualified now to, to to touch certain cars, or is that still at the moment fairly open for everybody? Um, the diagnostic side of things, mm. I'd say, is um, fairly open to the simple side of it. So plugging it into a car and you know reading the engine management light code or the ABS, or even now a lot of the cars that have got electronic handbrakes, you can push the pistons back, and that doesn't require really a lot of that much knowledge beyond that. Mm. Um, when you're getting into more the, the diagnostics of reading, so a lot of diagnostics now you can turn sensors on, you can open up the EGR valves, and you can do certain things on the engine and actually kind of locate where the problem is. That is a bit more um, involved. And I think if you're looking to work on modern cars, it would make sense to go and have a proper course and work out how you test the different parts of the engine. Um, as far as I'm aware at the moment, the only thing you really need a certificate for is if you're working on electric vehicles um, okay. because of the high voltage that's involved with those and the batteries. Uh, I think, you know, if you're working on those type of cars, you have to be trained to work on them, which is understandable because the you know the bolts that run through them is incredible. 
and um, I certainly wouldn't want to touch them without knowing what what's going on with them. Um, <laughs> I value Not my twice. life too much, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, diagnostics. You know, anyone can buy a dog diagnostics off the internet for you know as much as little as sixty pound and plug it in and find out what's wrong with the car. So simple diagnostics anyone can do when you're going into more detailed um with the sensors and the valves and different aspects of the engine it would definitely make sense to go and have a course on it because then you can understand what you're actually reading within the engine yeah and, and cars are only going to get much more complicated with connectivity and mm. um the uh semi-autonomous which yes. i think is a bit of a stretch at the moment but you know the uh driver assists that are getting more technical and more advanced yeah i think that that's making it uh harder for as you said before a, a smaller garage an independent to be able to uh help someone who owns a car you know it is it is going to be going back to the main dealers yeah at that well, point i know a lot of um and i know body shops are finding it difficult because of the amount of sensors that are on the vehicle when a vehicle has a crash they've then got to calibrate all the sensors so I know that uh, body shops have to spend thousands on calibrating you, the the equipment needed to do all these cars. So, mm-hmm. you know, body shops are finding it quite difficult to keep up with the technology on these new cars. Well, then that's another uh, reason that was um, discussed a few weeks ago about the increase in insurance premiums mm. is that um, people don't don't realise that with the until you explain it and then it makes perfect sense but really the, the complications and the extra as you're saying the, the extra sensors that are everywhere on a car now to fix that obviously requires more equipment more more you know the the parts are more expensive because there's more of them and then making sure that it works it's just uh yeah it is it costs are only going up is even though car prices haven't really gone up massively yeah. considering how complicated they are now compared to the 80s and the 70s and 60s where you know, people would go around with a lump hammer um, <laughs> to, to fix you know with their persuader uh, oh, nice. now hammer's you, you... the first tool you go for when you fix a <laughs> right I, I want to take a little bit of a, a change attack here and i'd like to go through your car history so you okay. got your first car at 17 so that you passed your test at 17 then yeah I first time? No, second time. Oh. <laughs> the uh, first round the corner, I clipped a curb and oh, um, managed to fail. So um, they say all the best people pass on the second time. So, <laughs> or is that just me that says that? <laughs> just go with it. Yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> so, what was your first car then? Uh, I had a Mark III Ford Fiesta, mm-hmm. uh, one point one, which. Um, I just adored it. I loved it. I actually checked the other day to see if it was still on the road. Um, but I, I don't think it is. I think it's probably rotten away in some scrapyard. But um, I would have happily bought it back. And, um, I mean, I had someone go in the back of it, and it also had a, a smash-up at the front as well. So um, it, it went through the wars a little bit. Um, but it was just a great first car. It really was. I enjoyed well, particularly it. Particularly if you're learning, uh, furthering your mechanical education as well. Mm. Yeah, it was so easy to work on. I remember I put a little spoiler on it and had had a few Max Power stickers on it, and I went through the um, stage. Yeah, your first car. I know. Yeah, it got it got a bit blinged up, and I loved it so much. It had a big bore exhaust on it. I mean, it sounded like it had 
huge amounts of power and all they had was a 1.1 but um no that's the perfect combination isn't it you're you're not allowed to have a more powerful engine it was all sound and no go um (laughs) but it just was the perfect first car it really was and um it was great to have the freedom as well of driving so i grew up in a village and so it was nice to just kind of jump in the car and and off i went really i can get out (laughs) yeah exactly yeah yeah so what, what did you move on to next Oh, did, did what did you sell? I did. Car? I sold it for a profit, which is unbelievable. Oh. But yeah, sold it for a two hundred pound profit. Um, and then I bought a Ford Escort XR three I convertible when I was nineteen. Um, okay, a nice white one with a white roof. Um, <laughs> which <laughs> yeah, got a few frowns from my friends who thought I was going into the hairdressing business. It's um, a cliche alert. Yeah. <laughs> It was either, yeah, turning into an Essex girl or going into become a hairdresser. But um, it was just the most amount of fun the car was. It, it was just brilliant. And I actually swapped the big bore exhaust over from the Fiesta onto the Escort. So I still had the same noise, but I had a little bit more power. Um, and it was just, I, I mean, the thing was I wrecked it. or The gearbox went on it and um, bits like that. And it got really rusty. But I wish I'd kept it now. Looking at the prices of what they're going for. I wish I'd kept it and done it up and sold well, it for talk, Talking of that, though, what do you think of the prices of... Well, I mean, new cars are being thrown in all the time under the banner of classic cars. Mm. Um, some of them seem... Um, I'm going to be polite and just say silly. <laughs> yeah, I do, I do a bit of work for Silverstone Auctions, and I was at the Silverstone okay. Auction at the NEC, and there was a couple of Fords there. And they make huge amounts of money, and it's it's crazy when you think that you know classic Fords make so much money, but then you get a Volkswagen or a Vauxhall, who which are just as iconic in my eyes, but yet they don't make halfway near as much as what the Fords are making. And I think on certain parts of the classic car market, it has gone a little bit crazy. You know, Porsches are making a lot of money, Fords are, but then other things just aren't selling as well. Mm. Um, so it's it's trying to find out. I mean. At one of the garages, they've just got a Ford Puma because I think that could be the next uh, classic car to make a lot of money. Um, but when you look at a Ford, and really they're just a rust bucket when they were in the 80s, and now they're yeah. making tens of thousands of pounds, it it doesn't make much sense, really. Do you, do you think it's um, people getting to a certain age and the rose-tinted glasses have turned up and they've got a bit of cash and they just, they, they're just they're imagining uh, how the car could have been rather than what it was actually like. Yeah, I think it's partly a midlife crisis for certain people. <laughs> um, I think it it takes you back to your childhood. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I love cars and I can see the value in certain cars, but I also think, would I pay that amount of money for something like that? Um, but then a lot of the cars that come through low mileage, you know, they're good condition and not many cars like the Ford Escort survived um, because they, they rusted so much. Um, I think... Once someone pays a lot of money for a car, it kind of, you get the ball rolling and then it's like a snowball effect and you get other people paying extortionate amounts for Porsches and Fords mm. and, and cars like that. So I think it is it is a massive snowball effect that someone sees someone pay that and then it just puts the prices up hugely. Yeah. Um, because, I, you know, I wouldn't say, I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of the Mark One Astra, the Vauxhall Mark One Astra, but they don't make nearly as much money as the Ford Escort. Whereas in my eyes, I'd rather have a Mark One Astra. Um, 
So I think it's personal preference, but I also think as soon as someone pays a huge amount of money for a certain make of car, that it just pushes the prices up for everyone else. Okay, so after the um, possibly cliched... <laughs> Escort that I Escort, read. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, did you did you sell that? I did, yeah. Not for profit. Much. No. Oh. <laughs> no, it was a bargain. It was actually daylight robbery. Um, I actually went. I think then my next car was. I think I went diesel and I got an Astra, a Mark IV Astra, um, because I was doing quite a lot of miles. So I then went for the yeah, I went for an Astra. <laughs> I went for a boring car. Mm. Um, so I went to that and then I got a Mark V Astra after that as well which was diesel and um, and then I went into the the four wheel drives and um, I've still got four wheel drive now Um, but to be honest I'm looking to go away from diesel I think the country government don't want you to have diesels and um, I think the overselling of diesels is now possibly coming to an end and I'd quite fancy get rid of my diesel, to be honest, before it's it becomes a point you can't get rid of them. Yeah, uh, I, I the way that the um, well, the way after Dieselgate, um, the the anti-car brigade really got going. Um, yeah, and then then it's back. You know, there are the problem is as with every everything when these sort of campaigns and these um, anti-groups start up is they are based on some facts and some actual reason for this. And the reason is because of the, you know, what, what a diesel will chuck out is not good for human beings. Yeah. Um, but for, for many people, they still are the, the practical way to get around because they yeah. do either high mileage or they're out in the middle of nowhere or and things like that. So they, they are still a, a powertrain, but I, yeah, I can easily see um, very soon that uh it becomes that you you're a you know pariah in society if you've got a diesel yeah um london's already going that way because of their horrific uh air uh, and the way that um the mayor's going to bring in that extra tax on diesels if you go in inside the uh, m25 basically so um yeah, it, yeah sell now <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i think so um, so what what 4x4s did you go um, I had a Jeep, um, mm-hmm. a Jeep Patriot, um, which spent more time in the garage than it did actually driving. <laughs> um, so that was not and good. Not to be modified. <laughs> it just it had a Vol- they had a Volkswagen diesel engine in because um, that's what they used the two litre um, Volkswagen engine, and it it managed to snap its uh, battery cable from the battery to the alternator, so it broke down. It wow. then blew a turbo pipe. Um, mm. Trying to think what else it had. It just was terrible. It just, you know, I bought it thinking it was going to be fine and it just wasn't. So I, I got rid of that. And now I've had my um, Land Rover Freelander for a couple of years. So I've, um, and it, it's a great car. I love my Freelander. Um, I probably wouldn't recommend it to anyone who can't fix it themselves because the costs are extortionate. But, um, it's a great and car. Has it needed much fixing? Um, it's had a starter motor. Um, it's had. I've done the EGR valve, which was a pain. That took me well over a day um, because it's located in such an awkward position. So, I mean, all my diesel cars have had to have EGR valves where they've got um, so carboned up that they've needed to be replaced. So it's quite. Is that a with common... people just not driving them 
far enough, often enough. Well, I do a lot of motorway miles, so I actually drive my diesels how really they should be driven. Mm. Um, but they just do. They get carboned up and um, it's, you know, there's, I'd probably do an EGR valve a week on diesel cars because they're mm. so common, um, common problems on them. Um, I think for a lot of people now, the the way that um, the petrol engine and how economical they are now makes perfect sense to move back. Yeah. Because it seems a lot of people have bought diesel and gone, oh, this will be economic, but I don't do many miles. Yeah. And not realising that they do actually need to effectively flush the system by giving it a good go. Yeah. Well, uh, people, yeah, people buy diesels and then don't drive them and then <laughs> wonder why... <laughs> Things break, and it's the problem is diesels have been sold to people, and they've been sold to people wrongly. They should, I mean, it's it's the whole thing of educating people, and that's what the car industry sometimes doesn't do very well. I think you know people need to be aware that if you're only doing say or under ten thousand miles a year, you shouldn't be buying a diesel. You should be buying a petrol because you'll end up with problems with the diesels. And um, I don't think people have been educated. Um, into that so they've bought one and then they've got problems you know you've got the dpf filters that clog up and then they require going back to the main dealer so there's there's so many um because diesel runs at such a high pressure there's a lot more to go wrong on them Mm. and you know a lot more expensive to to fix whereas a petrol as much as they're now turboed and they're you know there's a lot more on them they're not as bad they're um and like you said they're just as economical especially in the smaller cars um, although I did have a Volvo XC60 petrol and I thought it was brilliant. I'd have that over the diesel any day. It was, it was a brilliant car um, and it had a lot more power than the diesel as well. So I think manufacturers now need to put all their money into developing petrols that are just as economical and quick. Um, well, I, I can see the hybrid technology helping with that. Yeah. Um, whether it's to give the extra boost of power or whether it's to give the economy, um, I can see that really really coming forward now and being much more uh widespread uh particularly on the back of the um the diesel of diesel gate effectively because i mean volkswagen yeah. are going to have to do it because they're now going to be an electrified vehicle company mm. you know was it 30 electrified vehicles in the next five years or something they're going to be out with yes. so that's obviously a route they're going down yeah um so i think we diesels won't completely die but they will become a, a yeah. How um, alternatively fueled vehicles are now, if you look at the sales on sort of month by month, I think. I think that's what will happen. Yeah. Especially if they bring in tax breaks anyway. Yeah. And the new but tax sorry, laws just, as well. We're, we're just trying to fix the. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the world, the world again. Them. I mean, we're, yeah. cool. we're doing so well here. We've, we've done two things now. That's great. You know. <laughs> if anybody wants to bring us in as consultants, it's no problem. You know, we're, we're not that dear. Um, <laughs> you're not just a mechanic, though. Um, no. You do car reviews and things like that. Where would people see your stuff? I do, yeah, I do a little bit of car reviews. I, I wouldn't say I, I do a lot, but um, I, I do um, write-ups for, um, there's a company called Wheels for Women who are an online motor magazine um, aimed at women. And um, so I do some of their reviews. I do some write-ups about mechanical um, issues and um, I've been doing that for about a couple of years now, so it's um, it's interesting because I get to kind of put my views across. Um, I've annoyed a couple of manufacturers um, by being quite honest about the cars, and um, it's a good place to kind of 
get your knowledge across and try and educate again um i suppose the female sector do you enjoy it i do yeah i wouldn't say i'm a natural um writer but um i enjoy seeing what cars are out there and trying them out and i suppose the variety of driving different cars is is what i enjoy because you know at the end of the day i love driving cars and um Mm. i'd say some of them aren't particularly my cup of tea um but you know, it's good to get behind the wheel and, and see what what different manufacturers kind of, what their stance is on what people like, because um, some are completely different to others. I will, I mean, with something you just said there before, that you, you've you upset some manufacturers and I wouldn't ask you to. You know, but, <laughs> yeah, probably best um, at that, I mean, <laughs> but that's that's something I noticed through, the, through your writing uh, and your video reviews is that uh, it comes across very honest. Yeah. Um, and, and is that a, a particular deliberate step, but not, not the honesty, but the way that you present the information, is that a deliberate tactic on your part or is that just you just naturally delivering the way that you just do? Um, it's just a natural thing. I think if you're, because if you're reading a review on a car, you're reading it because you're interested in that car. And I think mm. if I'm writing stuff that's biased and not true about a car, then I'm not doing what I should be doing and I I have written some honest stuff about cars that I don't think are particularly great and certain things that they've put on cars which I, I don't particularly understand but I think honesty is very important I'm not going to say something about a car that I don't believe is true and I think um also you know people shouldn't always take what I'm saying or what other journalists are saying as what the car actually is because people have different opinions and you know what car I might like someone else might not like so whenever someone's asked me about a certain car I will give them an honest opinion on it but I also say to them go and try it yourself because I might not like this car because I might not like certain types of cars because I'm a petrol head so if it's a family car I'm not particularly into that car but it's still a good car um but go and see for yourself I'm just giving you a kind of snapshot of what I feel is honest about this car but I think people also need to realize that they need to see it for themselves as well because you might have to live with this car for three or four years so really you should be taking a snippet of what the journalist or whoever's reviewing this car and take that on board also go for yourself um, because I think too many people who write about cars have a opinion already based on that car regardless of what it drives like you know some of the German Mm -hmm. makes I think get really good reviews when some that I've driven, I don't think they're particularly great. Um, so it's, yeah, take what you read with a pinch of salt, but what I write is truly how I feel, no matter who I kind of annoy at the time, I think. Yeah, and, and that's that's something that really comes home uh, when when you look at your, your vids and, and read the stuff that you've written, is that it you were, you were making it clear, this is my opinion. Yeah. I've tried it out for X amount of time, and now this is my opinion of this vehicle, yeah, um, and and I like that about your your reviews. I I I think that's a really uh, good uh, thing that you do there, um, and I think you're also right there that uh, people do you know, some of the stuff that's reported. I'll I'll sit there, and, I'm, and you know, this, this is when I've been in the same car, and I've sort of gone, I didn't get that at all. You know, no. and somebody's <laughs> written something. And I, I completely disagree, you know? yeah. but that's, that's the, the joy. Cause I'm, I'm looking at it from a certain perspective. You're looking at it from a certain perspective and someone who writes for one of the magazines is looking at it from a certain perspective. So I think you're quite right there to say to people that yes, have a look at this 
And whilst you may have, uh, I may have gained your trust in what I've said that you go, okay, I can see where you're coming from, from that point of view. You've got to then try it or look at other reviews yeah. and see if there is a consensus. Yeah. There's also, you know, when you, you buy a car as well, I mean, quite often when you test a car, it's brand new. So everything is of course going to be fine on it. Mm. Um, but I think with, um, used cars, when the rev- when they've done the review, it's like, oh, this car's brilliant. A year down the line, it could be terrible. Um, and so I've kind of got an experience as well of cars down the line where the issues have arisen and things have gone wrong as well. So as much as when the car's brand new, it's everything works and it's just brilliant. A year down the line, it's also useful maybe to have a look at a review of a used vehicle because then you can see actually if the car is any good as well. Whenever I go and view a car with, because I get asked to view cars quite often with friends and family, you know, I, I always tell them the truth. I always tell them, well, I've worked on this certain car, this engine, I wouldn't even trust it mm. and tell them to walk away from it. But it's only because I've got that knowledge that I'm able to give them that opinion. Whereas if you don't have any knowledge of what the car's actually like, you can go in and think, oh, this car's brilliant because you've read a review and it sounds brilliant. And the journalist has said it's brilliant. Um, so it's, it, it is difficult, you know, because when you get a new car, it's new, fresh, and you don't know what issues you have down the line. But there are plenty of cars out there that do have issues and that aren't made aware through the, the reviews that are done. It's almost like a lot of people need to do a, a second hand or a, you know, two year old. Let's, let's use a two year old and tell you, yeah, here's bits we found now, um, yeah. which it would, which all costs money. So of course it's tricky to do. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. I want to move on to the uh, quick fire questions. Then. Yes. And I will start, um, or before I start, I am now going to pass on the mantra to myself that I completely mess up every week, but is to say that uh, I'm going to ask you the question. You will answer the question with the best way that you feel. I will then move on to the next one and try not to then say, ah, but, or, oh, that's interesting. And because uh, <laughs> I'm conscious this is your day off. And I don't right, want to take up right. too much of your time. <laughs> so I'll start with the first one that I always do. And that is what currently excites you about the motoring world? Um, it is the, I think it's the production of the three hypercars that have, um, I mean, they've been out for a year and a bit now. I suppose the Porsche 918, the McLaren P1 and the LeFerrari. I think the technology that's gone into them is is incredible. You know, the speeds and the, just the fact that they've all come out at the same time. I think it's, it's very exciting. They've used technology that they've um, used in Le Mans um, from the, the World Endurance Championships and from F1. And I think all that technology to be put into a road-going car, I think it's an incredible feat of engineering. Um, so that kind of stuff, I think, is, is pretty exciting. So that's an excellent answer. Uh, we've not had that one before. Uh, <laughs> what what currently worries you about the motoring world? The Again, I suppose it's kind of the same topic. The electric side of things, I think electric is being sold to the public and I don't think it's a good enough stage at the moment um I've had a hybrid this week a diesel hybrid a V60 Volvo and um it's it hasn't been great um I think the batteries are too heavy I think the technology hasn't progressed enough for it to be used in cars that are doing high mileages and um I'd like to see a bit more progression in, for it before it's then released um, to the public, to be honest. Yeah, I'm surprised at the uh, how 
little hybrid has moved forward in terms mm. of mileage available electric only and things like that yeah um that that is a bit of a i am a bit surprised by that i would have expected that to have moved on to more you know 50 mile plus now as a yeah. regular th- as as a minimum and i think and, it, and it's yes. not is it i mean we're no. talking we're talking across the wide scope here but you're talking 20 to 35 miles if you're lucky yeah i had the mitsubishi uh, outlander petrol hybrid and um i actually was sometimes i do quite a few miles and i actually parked it up and then took my freelander because my freelander was using less fuel i was at the petrol station constantly with that outlander and um i think with the new rules in april with the tax i don't think hybrids are going to be value for money until something better is done to make them more value for money no, I think that's going to it's going to be very tricky. That that change in April, I think, is going to make a big difference. Mm. Um, or it may not, because so many people buy, you know, pay per month. Yeah. Uh, and the and the hit of the particularly the forty grand. Yeah. Um, the, well, there's a double whammy, isn't there? There's the forty k, and then there's the if you're not completely green. Yeah, you've got to have zero emissions, and you know you've got to be yeah. fully electric for that. Um, yeah. But the whole electric side of things, for me, I wouldn't buy one. I wouldn't want to charge my vehicle up. Um, you know, at the moment, I like going to petrol station, being there five minutes and driving off. I don't want to be sitting there for 20 minutes waiting for my car to charge up. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it's just not practical enough um, for me to choose it over any other fuel. Um, but I'm sure it won't it won't be long until they produce things that that are better. You know, Tesla do some great ranges. I know the BMW i3 is getting a better range. Mm. I just wish they made the cars better looking. It just seems that they make an electric car and make it look awful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that that whole melted yeah look is is really. I mean, the Tesla me. is the is the best looking car. But I was actually. I drove a BMW i3 a little while ago and it is the ugliest car I think I've ever seen. And <laughs> the Toyota Prius that they've just bought out is pretty horrific. Um, so it seems that as soon as they buy out something that's a bit longer range and a bit prettier, I might be interested. But at the moment, it hasn't come on enough. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, an electric car makes an ideal second car if you're a two-car household. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, particularly you look at the, the new Zoe can do 200 miles. Yeah. And that will cover a vast majority of people in this country's needs for yeah. a week. Yeah. Um, and when you when you look at it from that point of view, it makes sense. But then you've got to counter the cost against that. Yeah. But it depends on what they were going to buy anyway. Yeah. yeah. And if they were going to buy a, an expensive SUV because they sort of wanted that sort of thing rather than a need, then you're like, well, it's a similar cost, but so... But then we get into badge snobbery. And, and it goes back to something else you said earlier, which is education. Yeah. And I don't think the car industry have done a good enough job of educating people into realising that uh, they don't actually need a petrol car most of the time or an internal combustion engine. Yeah. Most of their journeys are within five miles of their home. Yeah. And it's a quick little potter here and there. So. Yeah. Uh, that's something they have to improve on as well. But it also goes back to the electric side of things. You have to actually have a place where you can park your car and charge it up. If you've got, if you live somewhere where you don't have a driveway and you park it on the road, you you can't charge it up. I did make it to the second question before I. <laughs> <laughs> I, I said, ah, but <laughs> so, uh, let's move on to the third one and then ask you. Um, 
And this would be interesting whether you go back in history or, uh, to one of yours or not. But what's been your favourite car to drive and why was that? Um, that's, that's, that's difficult, that is. Um, I've driven so many cars that I've loved. Um, I'm going to do two. I'm going to okay. do a modern one and, a, and an old one. Um, I drove at an SMMT event and um, the first, they had all modern cars, but the first one I went towards was the Mark II Astra. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um gte it, it's been it's a car that's that a rounded version the slightly or was it squared off it was the, the mark II. uh it was um no it's rounded okay yeah, yeah the mark one is yep. quite square yeah um but it, it with the digital dash and it yeah. was a car that um i remember my uncle having growing up and just loved it um, so it was great to kind of get behind the wheel on that because so many cars, I've always been told never to drive the car that you've idolised. Um, and I remember moving a, a, a Lamborghini Countach and um, realising how horrible it was to drive <laughs> and um, thinking I wish I'd never driven it. But the um, Astra Mark II was, um, was a brilliant kind of drive. It's not quick, it's not a fantastic car to drive. It was just the fact of what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and then last year I had the Honda Civic Type R for a week and um, I just thought it was a brilliant car it was quick it had plenty of room for your friends in there it was had an incredible sound and um, I think it's one of the best hot hatches you can buy on the market at the moment it just it just was just brought a smile to my face and I think that's the most important thing about driving a car is how it makes you feel and the, the Type R made me made me pretty happy to be honest <laughs> Yeah, there's there's so many people get have a car just to do a job, and yeah. it's uh, I, I've uh, I've had a, a a nice car over the last week, and um, I'd almost got to the stage where I'd forgotten how fun driving could be. Yeah, and this reminded me that it can be fun, and it should be fun. Yeah, um, and yeah, uh, the, unfortunately, the the back of a Type R only has two seats, so I can't take my family in that. So <laughs> Alan had to test that. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> Which yeah. he was, you know, distraught at the, you know, the been, short yeah, straw he pulled. <laughs> I can imagine, yeah. <laughs> okay, then uh, let's go conversely to that. Then, what has been your least favorite car to drive, and why? Um, the well, it's not Citroen anymore, but it's the DS range. Um, the DS3 I think is a, is a great car but the the DS4 and the DS5 I think they're overpriced I think they're poorly made I can't see the point to them if I'm honest the DS range and I think it's quite let down that a, a car company has produced a car that says it's prestige but it just doesn't fit in the marketplace it just I don't see the point of them. And um, I think it shows by not seeing many on the road. I don't think, you know, they've had a great sell of the DS4, the DS5. Mm. And I've also known people who've bought them and had awful mechanical problems with them. So I think it's it's a car range that isn't particularly well marketed and, and I don't particularly enjoy driving them. So it'd have to be the DS4 and 5 as, <laughs> as one of the worst cars that I've driven. Um and going back to old cars, I'd say the Morris Minor is probably one of the worst cars I've driven as well. Um, it takes about two days to brake and reach a stopping distance. And um, 
they throw you about, you get rattled everywhere and um, they're not the most, in, in fact, I'm actually terrified whenever I drive a Morris Minor, so they could definitely do with a brake upgrade, if I'm honest. But apart from that, they're fine. <laughs> yeah, they're an English icon, but I'm not I'm not a big fan of them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, then, uh, next question is, uh, what car would you like to own next? Oh, I'd love to own a McLaren, but... Um, if we're talking real terms in real kind of money, this can be anywhere. You can <laughs> that anywhere you like. Okay, I'd love to own a McLaren six fifty. I think um, you know it's British built. It's you know incredible engineering that goes into a lot of the McLarens I've seen. I've driven a couple of them. I've driven the MP four twelve C, and I've also driven the the six fifty, and um, just mind blowing. I think. They're just a brilliant car. So um, if I had the money, uh, there'd be no doubt I'd buy a, a McLaren. What is stunning about McLaren cars, apart from the technology, everything, is how quickly they have moved from, you know, we fondly remember the F1 to actually you mentioned them in the same breath as Ferrari, Porsche. You know, they're, they're up, yeah. they are one of the names now. They're, yeah. they're a poster on the wall of a kid. Yeah, I think, it, you know, as well, Porsche, I've, I've driven a couple of Porsches. I think, you know, Porsche are one of the best car makes around and they also do affordable cars. And Porsche would definitely be on my list of cars um, that I'd have. Um, I just think it's important to support um, British makes, which McLaren are. Mm-hmm. And I think they are the prettiest cars on the road. Um, I think, you know, the, the styling of them is is beautiful. Um, and I just think they're that kind of car that I think there's certain supercars that enrage people and I don't think McLaren are one of them. I don't think I'm going to come back to it and it's going to be keyed or something like that. Mm. Whereas I think certain supercar makes bring out the worst in people. Yes. Particularly in this country. (laughs) Yeah. It's through jealousy and and bits like that. And I, I know someone who, who drove a 488 Ferrari and, um, was sitting in traffic and it, it got spat on in traffic and you just it's that kind of mentality you know I I wouldn't want to be in a car where I just feel vulnerable and I Mm, think McLaren's are seen as quite a sophisticated supercar not saying that Ferrari aren't but I just I'm I'm a big McLaren fan so it'd definitely be one from their their stable (laughs) okay excellent Uh, what is your favourite road to drive on Definitely not in this country um, because it just gets <laughs> – no, there are some great roads, really are some great roads. In this country, um, a lot of the country roads and up near Wales, I've done a bit of driving up there. Um, it just is when you get stuck behind a lorry, it doesn't get particularly enjoyable. Um, but I've done the um, ocean road from in Croatia from um, up towards Dubrovnik, Mm-hmm. And that was stunning. It was a beautiful drive. Um, it's a shame I was in a Volkswagen up, but um, <laughs> <laughs> it was um, it was just a stunning road. And I'd love to go back there in a um, in something a little bit quicker. And it was actually I got overtaken by a load of um, Mercedes Sterling Moss editions. So um, yeah, I felt a little bit small in my Volkswagen. But it, it, it's a beautiful road, and and anything kind of around Europe is. Um, I'd, lo- I'd love to do more driving, if I'm honest, and do more abroad, but just haven't had the opportunity yet. So I'm sure there's plenty of roads out there that I haven't discovered yet. Are you just going to have to restore some really expensive cars and flog them on? <laughs> I know, yeah. I'm going to have to work more. buy yourself six months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would be nice. 
<laughs> okay, then what has been the most pointless optional extra you've experienced? Um, See, now here we're going to get, actually, we have the opportunity looking at it from two sides. Yeah. You can have the user and the fixer. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, I find it strange that you have to pay extra for a spare wheel. Um, I've always thought when you buy a car, you should get a spare wheel. And I understand why manufacturers do it. They obviously do it for the uh, weight saving and the miles per gallon, but I think it's dangerous. Um, I think it's um, a pretty dangerous ploy by the manufacturers not to include a, a spare wheel and just to include a, a bit of putty that you spray into the into the tyre. Um, I think ashtrays as well. I think they're a pointless extra now. Um I don't see why that anyone would want an ashtray. <laughs> yeah. It's it's quite old fashioned now, something like that. Um I I wouldn't say I come across many pointless ones, if I'm honest. Um I think you have to be careful when you spec in a vehicle that added extras don't add an extra ten grand onto the car. Um It's quite easy, isn't it? <laughs> it's very easy. Um but the spare wheel thing for me is it's just silly. And actually I drove a Peugeot the other day and one of the one thing you had to pay for as an added extra was an alarm. And I would have thought an alarm would be pretty standard by now, um, but obviously not for Peugeot. So that was a bit strange that that was an added extra. Mm. Um, but pointless, yeah, no, I wouldn't say there's many that, you know, a lot of stuff that's now put on cars is for the driver's convenience. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I get into my car, I don't have to turn the lights on, I don't have to turn the wipers on. And I get into another car and I forget to turn them on. So I think we've added extras now. We're becoming quite lazy. Yes. And which isn't good. But yeah, um, the spare wheel definitely. I don't. I just don't understand it. If I'm honest. Okay. That's, that we've not had that one before. So I, I <laughs> we're slowly moving. We're slowly creating a whole car from everybody saying the pointless extras. Oh really? What's other people come up with? Um, well, we've had um, electric seats because of the weight. Right. Okay. Um, um, safety devices sort of the lane departure because it made people lazy right okay um, so yeah so we're, we're slowly building up an entire car I, mean, <laughs> I, doubt, I, I doubt at any point we're going to get to the side windows but uh, we, I, we well can... I did actually with the Volvo this week it's got automatic dipping of the headlights oh. and um, I had someone coming towards me the other day who had their lights on full and I couldn't flash them because it wouldn't let me oh dear so I couldn't tell them that they had their lights up high. By f- so um, with that technology, you can't flash people who are annoying you, which is annoying to the driver because I can't flash them while they're blinding me. Um, so that's that's a. Did thing you just have thought that through? No, obviously not. No. <laughs> Edge case. <laughs> Angry driver needs to be yeah, able to flash lights. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we're we're almost done here, um, but. I want to know who you think uh, I should approach to ask to be on this show next. Oh, right. Um, I've done a bit of work with a guy who's quite a top-end valeter, uh, Richard Tipper, who owns Perfection Valet. Mm -hmm. He's done some of the most incredible cars in the world. Um, So he'd be really interesting to talk to because I know he's, he's, he's certainly got some tales to tell. Um, <laughs> there's a guy. So he could repeat. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, no. Some of the cars. I mean, he's doing some weeks. He's doing cars worth ten million pounds. So um, I do follow him on Twitter, and you, you'll see uh, he'll have like a, a he'll do a picture of the color 
because he's had to get that close to the counter. More will be revealed in a couple of weeks. I can't say anything now. He's like, oh, you're such a tease. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know he's got quite a big following. Um, but yeah, because of the, the cars he does. So, um, yeah, he's definitely um, done some of the most, you know, some of the most rare cars that have ever ever been produced, you know, one-offs and cars. I know he was at Retroville, um the other the other week in Paris. Mm. So, yeah, he's, he's definitely done some awesome cars. I will add him to my hit list. <laughs> much more sinister than it really is, which is just a little spreadsheet, and I keep a list of names. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for that. So um, the last question really is, is how can people uh, follow what you do or get in touch with you? Um, I'm quite... I, well, I'm on Twitter quite a bit. I try and put... Um, as much as I can. Sometimes it's a bit boring when I'm doing servicing and things like that. So, but I'm on Twitter as at female mechanic one. Um, so I try and put as much on there as possible of some things that are interesting. I'm not as interesting as Richard Tipper, unfortunately, but um, <laughs> <laughs> don't think anyone wants to see a brake change. I'd rather see a Ferrari 250 that he's doing. So, um, oh, I don't know. It, it, it... The motoring, <laughs> the motoring side of the internet does have its people that like these specialists. Yeah. Of things. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, on uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my email address is on there as well. Um, I, I write for Wheels for Women. They've got both a, a UK and Irish site, so that's wheelsforwomen.co.uk. And um, I'm on YouTube as well, so some of my reviews are on there. So that's where you can catch me. Okay, excellent. I'll have links to all that in the show notes. Brilliant. Want to round out? We're just saying thank you so much for being on. That's okay. Thank you for um, helping to fix sexism in the motoring industry. <laughs> um, thank you for helping to fix diesels. Uh, and I've I've just had a blast here. I've been, it's been great because you're ever so approachable on Twitter and you, yeah. you, you chat and you're, you're very open on that. And I, I do appreciate that you chat to this random loony on the other end. That's okay. I, I, I love talking stuff. about the industry and, and if you know I can help people, whether they're male or female, get into fixing cars, then I'm happy to help. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Bye. Thanks once again to Hannah for coming on Rearview and chatting to me. I hope you found our chat as fascinating as I did. If you want to suggest someone I should ask to come on this show, please do get in touch. If you use the hashtag RearViewPod, we'll be guaranteed to see it in Motoring Podcast Towers. To get in touch with me directly, search for Crack Windscreen on Twitter. And if you like to keep up to date with motoring news and opinions and car reviews, go try out the sister show, which is the Motoring Podcast. I'd like to ask you listening to go and leave a rating and review, preferably on iTunes. It really makes a difference to me and it helps others to find the show. So until next time, That was Hannah Gordon, I've been Andrew Clues, and safe motoring.